Our scripture this morning comes from uh, Luke chapter 15, and it is the story of the prodigal son. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear him, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Then Jesus told them this parable. There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided the property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got got all together what he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he'd spent everything, there was a severe famine in the land over the whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed hogs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired men have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For the son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked, What's going on? Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, All these years, I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never even gave me a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Doran. Pray with me if you would. Oh, Holy Spirit, would you pour out upon us wisdom and understanding that as we learn from you in Holy Scripture, that our hearts and minds would be open to receive all that leads to life and holiness. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, amen.
Amen. So we're spending uh, four weeks. This is week three of four, where we're looking at three stories Jesus tells in Luke 15. They're called parables commonly. They're just kingdom stories is what we're calling them. Uh, And they're they're stories with a twist. In other words, they always end in a way that we don't expect them to. There's always a twist. I don't know if you've noticed, but there's actually been a progression. So two weeks ago, we looked at the story of a man had a hundred sheep and lost one and went out to find it. We went out to find one, one in a hundred, one percent loss. Last week was a woman who had ten coins and lost one. That was a one percent loss. She went out to find the one coin. This morning, a man had two sons and lost one. So the scale of loss is getting greater and greater. Jesus is building and progressing in the stories he tells. And it's commonly called the story of the prodigal son. I bet that's how you've heard it. Uh, that's probably not the best title for the story, though. If you look at prodigal in the dictionary, and I bet you never have because we never use this word, prodigal just means wasteful or extravagant. Wasteful or extravagant. Now, it's not to say that can't describe the younger son. I mean, he went out and and wasted his money in lavish living. But one pastor uh, named Tim Keller points out wasteful and, and, and extravagant better describes the love of the father towards his son. And so that's what we're really going to look at this morning. In fact, Tim Keller wrote a book called The Prodigal God, which also kind of ruffled some feathers just by using that phrase. Could it be that God is so loving, so over the top, that we might call it wasteful and extravagant? Certainly some of Jesus' followers thought exactly that, which is why they got upset, and that's why Jesus told these stories in the first place. And some of us make it, I mean, in New England, wasting anything is like a cardinal sin. We don't waste nothing, right? Use everything, reuse everything until it completely deteriorates. Now, I just have to note, so I'm indebted to um, this pastor, Tim Keller, for uh, this idea of God being more prodigal than the son. I'm also indebted, there's a scholar named Kenneth Bailey, Uh, I guarantee you've never heard, well, maybe you have. I had never heard of him until about a month ago. He wrote like a 200-page commentary just on the three stories in Luke 15. And I was texting uh, with Jamie a couple days ago, and I told her, I said, I'm so frustrated because I'm reading this, and there's just more here than, I said, if I were to to share everything I'm learning, this would be like a two- or three-hour sermon. Uh, I won't, so rest easy. Uh, But... There's just so much in here and so much of the material I'm indebted to Kenneth Bailey for as well. The, um, the stories in Luke 15 are all designed to tell us really one thing, and that's this. What is the heart of God? What does God's heart look like? And we often have ideas about what God's heart looks like, but Jesus tells us these stories to say, you think it's like this, but actually it's like that. This morning, we're looking at the loving heart of God, and we're going to see really... I'm going to categorize it in in two big buckets. You could organize it differently. But this morning, I want to look at two categories of love or two qualities of love. Now, if Scripture says that God is love, and it does, if God is love, then the very same things we're saying about love are true of God. So this is what we're going to see this morning. Number one, love lets itself get hurt. Love allows itself to get hurt. And number two, love longs for healing. 
Love longs for healing. Love allows itself to get hurt, and it longs for healing. Those are the two buckets that we're going to look at this morning. It lets itself get hurt, and this is what we see right at the beginning. The man has two sons, an older son and a younger son. The younger son leaves on bad terms. What does he say? Father, give me my share of your estate. Now, if you just think about it, like on the surface, that's a pretty offensive request. That's saying, give me my inheritance right now. Can you imagine? Or just do, it doesn't take much work to figure out what is, what is he really saying. Give me my, when do you get an inheritance? Not while the person's alive. So what he's really saying to his father is, Dad, you're dead to me. Or, to phrase it a little bit differently, Dad, I care more about your stuff than I care about you. I want the stuff you can offer me more than I want you and a relationship with you. Now that's, that's bad. It's kind of, I mean, it's not in this severity, but it's kind of a classic younger sibling thing. You know, like the older sibling is always the rule follower and they do things by the book and never, and the younger sibling is the rebel. And Jesus knows, and so he's, he's doing that here as well. And in ancient Middle Eastern cultures, this is so offensive to, to their listeners, probably more so than, than, than it is to ours. It's so offensive that it was common if a son really offended or upset his father, that it was appropriate for a father not only to kick the son out, not with, uh, one author put it, not only with verbal blows, but with physical blows. This is what Jesus' audience would have expected. They would have expected dad to say, get out, don't ever let me see you again. Imagine yourself in the father's shoes. Just imagine your kid comes and says, I, I care more about your stuff than I care about you. You're dead to me. Like, is there a deeper possible wound as a parent? I can't think of one if there is. So here's a question. If, if you're in the father's shoes, what do you do? I don't know. Like, what... I'm pretty sure I would not give my kid the money. Like if, if, if my kid came to me and said, I want my inheritance now, there's, there's obviously the symbolic hurt and the pain of what they're saying, but just practically like, no. <laughs> and, and I'm your parent. You can't tell me what to do. And I know if, I know, if you're the type of kid, you know, you know your kids, you know their personality, you know what their strong points are, and you know what their weak points are. And if your kid is the type of personality to ask for their inheritance early, you know without a shadow of a doubt that that same kid is going to go out and blow it all and going to come back on their hands and knees. Like you just know, right, parents? <laughs> you know. But would you get angry? Would you be disappointed? There's just so much emotion here that I'm not even sure how to unravel. But I, I dare say that not one of us in here would say, here, with a little sack with a dollar sign on it. It wouldn't be like that, but you would Venmo it today. Here. It's a shocking request. To a first century Jew, the father's response is even more shocking. Verse 12, so he divided his property between them. We can get a taste of it, but again, we have to try to put ourselves in the position of a first century listener. Let's look at that kind of hurt. In ancient cultures especially, wealth was largely accumulated in two things, land and possessions. 
They didn't, it wasn't so much a cash economy, it was a goods economy. So your wealth, if you were wealthy, was probably in land and very likely also in livestock. So in order for dad to give his son the money, what does he have to do? He has to sell his land, a third of it. We know from ancient cultures that the older sibling usually got twice uh, what the younger siblings got. So he's probably got to divide it somehow. Into, he's got to liquidate a third of his land. And in ancient cultures, even more so than today, but we feel this today, their identity was tied to the land. We feel it today. If you're from Portsmouth, you're proud of being from Portsmouth. If you live, some of you live in the house you grew up in, you would never just sell that house on a whim. It's not just the the financial asset that represents, but there's a symbolism of, like, you are connected to this house. You're connected to this town. You went to Portsmouth High School, and you're proud that you're a Portsmouth High School class of whatever. And it's true wherever you're from, right? Like, we're proud. We identify with where we're from. Now, in ancient cultures that were much less mobile, you were even more connected. So the father, in essence, had to give up his identity by selling his land for his son. That's incredible, isn't it? Why would the father let his son go like that? The only answer I can think of, the only answer I can think of is that love allows itself to be hurt. Like true love now, you might say, that's not loving at all. Like, it's, it's enabling. It's letting the son destroy himself. I don't know, maybe. But true love, genuine love, doesn't try to control, but it lets go. You know, the old say, it's cheesy, but it, there's some truth in it. You know, if you, if you love someone, let them go, and if they come back, they'll be yours forever. You ever heard that? It's probably not, I wouldn't take that as gospel truth, but there's, there is truth in it. And we know, we kind of resonate with the truth in it, which is at some level, love has to let go. Because the alternative is, is what? I don't know, coercion. It's control. And coercion and control are definitely not loving. To try to coerce someone or to control someone, to force their hand or to impose your will on them, we would all say that's, that's not loving. To truly love someone means to give them freedom, even if it means they hurt you with the very freedom you gave them. There are some exceptions here. Let's just deal quickly with the exceptions because you might be wondering. I can think of two. Maybe you can think of more. One, we might say, what about with children? Like with young children, of course you're not going to let your young child do whatever they want. I don't. That would not be loving. But that's because it's a young child and they don't have an understanding of cause and effect and consequences and they don't know the danger of running out into the middle of a parking lot or or whatever. But this clearly is an adult son. This is not a child. So that doesn't really apply here. The other exception I can think of, and this one is much more serious, would be a, a case of abuse. And there are times that people have used ideas like this to manipulate somebody into an abusive relationship or situation. That's, let's just call it what it is. It's heinous, it's evil, it's wicked, okay? Love does not mean letting somebody abuse you. We don't have time to, it's not a sermon about that. So we don't have time to get all, but just, just hear me clearly. We're not talking about abusive situations here. The point is this, and, a, and a, let's call it a, a normal, healthy, adult relationship. 
Love makes itself vulnerable to being hurt. It opens itself. And when you're open, that means your defenses are down. In fact, I would go so far as to say to refuse to be vulnerable is to refuse to love. It's, it's some other kind of relationship, but it's not love. At great cost to himself, what does the Father in Jesus' parable do? He lets the Son walk away. This commentator that I talked about, Kenneth Bailey, here's how he puts it. It's really good. The Father's nature is to grant his Son ultimate freedom, the freedom to reject the love offered to him by a compassionate Father. And then he adds this, the greater the love, the greater the pain when the love is not accepted. The first mark of love, the first characteristic is that it, it opens itself to being hurt. It lets the other person walk away. You know, um, I've heard it said that, the, think about it again in the context of children, if you have kids, like true love for your kids is loving them even when they hate you. That's kind of a different spin on the same thing. Loving your kid, insisting on loving your kid, and showing your kid you love them even when they say they hate you. The father lets the son hurt him. And then we get this interlude. The son goes off into a far country and blows it. And there's a famine and he's hungry. And let me just read this part here. After the son had spent everything, there was a severe famine. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen who sent him into his field to feed pigs. And the son longed to fill his stomach even with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. He's so hungry that pig slop sounded good. And when the son came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired men have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and I'll say to him, so here he's rehearsing his speech. You ever, you've never you ever rehearsed a speech before? I will say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. So he got up and went to his father. Now, let's just point this out. Why does the son go back to his father? If you read it just real quick, it, it sounds noble. You know, he uses, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. That sounds, that sounds like he's coming around. That sounds like he's sorry. But according to Jesus, look at verse 17. Why does the son come back to the father? Not because he's sorry, because he's hungry. That's it. He was hungry. In fact, if you read through this, I read through it quickly again this morning, and I noticed six times in that little blurb, it mentions food. The whole reason the son wants to come back isn't because he's sorry for destroying his father's relationship. He just wants food. In other words, he still just wants what the father can offer him. He makes it sound like he's sorry. And so he develops this plan. Make me like one of your hired men. Now, it's a different word. The word for hired man is a different word than the word for slave. A hired man is probably more like a, a tradesman or a craftsman. It's somebody who's very skilled with their hands, who earns a good living, especially in ancient cultures. So his plan is to go back and to work for dad and earn an income so that he can hopefully eventually pay off his debt. 
So at the very least now, he'll be like a hired man, and maybe, just maybe, he can buy back his relationship with dad. Quick question, as a parent, or just imagine yourself as, you don't even have to be a parent. Isn't it kind of offensive for some, to think somebody could buy back their relationship with you? Of course, that's not how it work. works. He rehearses his speech. He goes back to his father. He went to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him. Let me just pause right here. It was expected in ancient cultures for the father, especially a wealthy father like this, to be very austere and very dignified. Fathers sat, like literally sat at home in a lot of these situations. So an ancient listener would have expected dad to be sitting in the house waiting for his son to come to him. He would have been very austere, very dignified, very serious. But look at how Jesus paints it. When the son got up, he went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion and ran to him and threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger. Put sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For the son of mine was dead and is alive, was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. An ancient listener expected dad to be sitting at home waiting for son to come home so he could give him the business. And he knew his son would come home sooner or later because, again, he knows the son's character and personality and knows he's going to blow it. But what happened? He saw him from a long way off, which means he wasn't just sitting inside. He was looking for him. You don't recognize somebody from a long way off unless you're looking for them. He was filled with compassion. I love this. The Greek word for compassion, by the way, is the same root as the Greek word for bowels or guts. You ever, you ever been so moved with compassion or empathy that you felt like sick to your stomach? That's what this is. That's what's going on here. The father was like, this is what real empathy has been a very trendy idea for the last 10 years and empathy different definitions, but I think the best is you feel what somebody else feels. Somebody else feels sad, and you actually feel sad. You don't just see them and think, oh, like that, that stinks. I'm sorry for you. No, you actually feel the father feels his son's pains in his guts. He ran to his son. He didn't just sit at home. And by the way, ancient Middle Eastern men did not run. In order to run, because you wore a long cloak, you had to hike up your cloak a little bit. That would expose your legs, which was a sign of indignity or poverty. Dignified Middle Eastern men did not run. In fact, we have some ancient Arabic translations of Luke 15 that leave this detail out, probably because that was such an offensive idea. He was moved with compassion. He saw his son from a long way off. He ran to him, and then he kissed him. Again, an ancient, ancient Middle Eastern listener expected some form of physical contact between the father and the son, but it was probably a slap to the face, not a kiss on the face. 
And in fact, for what the son did, he probably deserved a slap to the face, at least. But what happens? Not, not a touch of anger or aggression, but a touch of affection. And you don't kiss somebody, by the way, when you're, <laughs> you don't kiss somebody when things are really bad. <laughs> like a kiss, <laughs> I don't know, I, I don't. Uh, you know, like we kiss people when, when things are good, when we're celebrating a close-knit relationship. All of these things you see in the son's plan is ruined. Because what had the son planned to do? The son had tried, he wanted to buy back his relationship with his dad. And before he could get out, you notice this, the son can't even get out the whole speech. Dad interrupts him and ruins his plan. He says, you can't buy your way back to me. You're mine. The son of mine was lost and is found. Friends, you cannot buy your way back to God. Hear me loud and clearly on that. You can't earn your way back to God any more than that son tried to earn his way back to his father. That's what Jesus is getting at, with the, at least with the relationship between the father and the younger son. Now we're going to look at the relationship between the father and the older son next week. And we get this wrong so often. Sometimes we get this wrong in like a very, very clever, complex, sophisticated way. And we think, okay, well, I can't like, I can't do stuff to earn God's affection, but I need to at least believe the right thing. I need to have the right beliefs in order to earn God's affection. Maybe we'll even go deeper and we'll say, well, maybe it's not about belief, but, but I need to have the right attitude so that God will take me back but do you notice here that the son has the wrong attitude and the father takes him back? Does that grate at you a little bit? It, it still bothers me. So much that I almost crossed that line out of the sermon because I was like, that just doesn't seem to make sense. And maybe this is why older brothers are so... Uh, offended at this story. Maybe this is why Pharisees are so offended at the story Jesus is telling that there is nothing, 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 hear me clearly here, there's what? Nothing that we can do to manipulate God into loving us or to earn him into taking us back. You just can't do it. You can't buy grace. And in the story Jesus tells, he says it starts with grace and it ends with grace and it's pervaded with and saturated with grace throughout the whole thing. It's all grace. And if that rubs you the wrong way and if that offends you, come back next week because we're really going to have fun with the older brother next week. I'm an older brother, by the way, so I'm going to be preaching to myself next week, literally and spiritually. Our, our faith comes down in this sense, the front end of our faith, to one question. Not can you find your way back to God, but will you let God find you? You see the difference between those two? You finding your way back to God means you figure it out through doing the right thing or believing the right thing or having the right attitude, but letting God find you means what? What do you do to be found? You just 
kind of sit there. And the story of the woman who lost the coin, what does a coin do to be found? It just kind of is there. And the story of the lost sheep, what can a sheep do to be, it just, it's, it's, you see what Jesus is saying? That for some reason, and we can't understand this, God, there's a word for this, it's sovereignty. God in his, it means he does what he wants regardless of what we want. God in his sovereignty wants to find you. Will you let yourself be found? Love lets itself be hurt, and love longs for healing. God lets himself be hurt, and God longs for healing. He lets us walk. This is a story of Adam and Eve. Like, open your Bible to page two, and you see God letting people walk. And he lets us, he will let you walk from him if you want. But his heart is that he longs to heal his relationship with you. That no matter how long you've walked from him, how long it's been, how far you've gotten, no matter how badly you've sinned, no matter if you think I couldn't walk into a church, and I know you did this morning, I couldn't walk into a church because the roof would cave in, it just won't. Because God has let himself, he's let us walk from him and hurt him. And he longs to heal his relationship with us. So much so that he'll, he'll pay any cost, he'll suffer any loss to get us back. On the cross, Jesus paid a cost. The greatest cost that you can't, like you can't imagine a greater cost. On the cross, God gave his life to get you back. <laughs> love lets itself be hurt and love longs for healing. Love, true love, pays any cost for healing. You see what's going on here? It cost him, make no mistake about it. But for a restored relationship and for love, God wants to find you. God loves us, I mentioned this in the children, with a never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. A never stopping, a never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. And I love that when I read our children's Bible with Elliot and it uses that phrase that she starts to say it with me now. She just knows it. It's sinking in. And I pray that you would know it too. Let's pray. Oh Lord, thank you that you love us with a never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. Even when we run, especially when we run, no matter what, you stopped at nothing, even at the cost of your own life, to get us back. Help us to to perceive your love, to understand it, to receive it and accept it. And would you change us by your love? We ask these things in the name of our dear Savior Jesus. Amen.